This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're sipping on stories about how access, legislation, and circumstance affect what we drink. I think now it's really changing that there's a growing excitement about drinks that are zero proof and alcoholic. So it just felt like kind of a very good timing. This plant's been around for millions of years, and uh, I just think that it's so special, so uniquely uh, American and pre-American, that it just should have a very prominent place in our society, you know, for a lot of different reasons. It is helpful to be able to sell one drink. It would be more helpful to be able to sell two or three at a time. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers. I'm your co-host, Ethan Frisch. And I'm your co-host, Valerie Lomas. And we have a really interesting guest for you this week, somebody I've uh, gotten to know over the years. We have moved in similar circles and eaten meals together, (laughs) and I'm really excited to to have her on the show this week. Manal Kahi is the co-founder and CEO of Eat Off Beat. Manal, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's super exciting to connect again. Ethan, I know we've connected a few times. It's such a pleasure to, to be here today and kind of get to talk and uh, discuss things again. We do have some cool projects in the works, which we can talk about a little bit today, I guess, but it's mostly your project. I'm, I'm uh, just a, a sales vehicle as usual. <laughs> um, well, let's, <laughs> let's start with a little, a little background now. What is Eat Off Beat and how did you come to start the company? Absolutely. Eat Off Beat is a food company that delivers authentic meals, entirely conceived, prepared and delivered by refugees resettled here in New York City. So we primarily started as a catering company back in 2015. We operated as a catering company, primarily doing corporate catering um, for the past, say, uh, five to six years. With COVID, we've pivoted, and I think we're going to talk much more about that uh, later on, so I won't reveal everything right now. But basically today, what we do, and after our pivot, since uh, it's been exactly a year ago, uh, today we deliver meal boxes with freshly prepared meals all over New York City. We also ship um, gifts and provisions, provisions and gift boxes uh, all over the, the U.S., basically. And I'm, I'm guessing we, we'll talk more about that later on, uh, Ethan, or would you like me to give you more details right now? Uh, go for it. Go for it. Yeah. So, <laughs> like I mentioned, we, we've had to pivot from catering with basically, you know, w- with COVID, corporate catering was almost dead. Uh, we don't know when and if it will come back. So basically within a week uh, in March 2020, we lost 100% of our business. We were in a very rough situation and we've had to completely pivot or basically give up the business, right? And say, all right, we're going to close and, and see what to do. So within a week, we took our best sellers from catering, repackaged them, repurposed them, put them in a box, and we started delivering those boxes directly to our customers at home instead of delivering uh, or instead of serving them food at the office. And that's something that we still do today. So all over New York City, we deliver what we call meal boxes. Those are freshly prepared meals made by our chefs uh, on a daily basis at our kitchen, which is located in Long Island City today. Uh, and usually a meal box will have three to four different meals. It will it would cover you if it's a single person, if it's one person eating it, it will probably be enough for four days. If it's a couple, it's going to be two to three days of uh, f- fully prepared meals. Uh, and usually every single box will have at least three to four different cuisines represented. So you might start with a salad from Iraq, then have a, a rice dish from Iran, a chicken dish from Afghanistan, uh, another veg side, let's say, from Senegal and a dessert from Venezuela. So that's really what makes us special in in that sense. And I'll talk a bit more about that uh, later on. Uh, And as I mentioned, also keeping up with all of the pivots that we've had to go through after COVID, we've noticed that we had, there was some demand outside of New York. So trying to also fill that demand outside of New York, we started delivering or shipping gift boxes, or we call them today provisions and gift boxes that we ship nationwide. And those have eats and treats, snacks, jams, desserts that are long shelf life uh, and that can be shipped all over the U.S. So this is really the two main things that we do today. Uh, And maybe to take a step back and kind of tell you why we do all of that, I mentioned in the very introduction or in the very um, 
couple minutes ago, as I mentioned, all of our chefs are refugees and immigrants who now call New York City home, right? So for us, really, it's all about three goals as a company. The first is to create quality jobs for talented refugees who want to be in the food industry. The second is to build bridges between us cooking at the kitchen and New Yorkers or Americans having our food wherever they are, at the office, at home, wherever they are. And the third goal for us, ultimately, it's all about changing the narrative around refugees, around immigration, by showcasing a different, a more positive story, right? A story where refugees are the chefs, they are the heroes, they are the ones helping us as New Yorkers discover something new and something different and not the other way around. Um, that's and it and, and not so short. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you've been doing this for, for quite a while and, and have weathered uh, a lot of shifts, both in terms of, uh, you know, like COVID, a, a major shift to your audience, to your market, but also politically and, and uh, uh, you know, running a refugee, a business that, that um, makes refugees such a, a big part of the business model, the employment model, and also just the narrative of the business. Right. How, how, have you, how have you seen those shifts happen over the last seven years? And, and uh, I guess the short version of the question, are, is thing, are things getting easier? Are they getting harder? Um, where do you think we stand today as opposed to where you started? I would say, you know, th that's, a, that's a fun question to answer. I would say we really define ourselves as a non-political company that in essence is very political, right? So we've never been largely affected by overall politics that happen around us. And clearly, I mean, I, I can be upfront with, with Trump, for instance, with the previous administration. It was definitely a climate that wasn't as conducive to, to us operating from levels of, you know, refugees being, uh, being accepted into the country, um, a climate that was relatively anti-immigration than, than the other way around. So definitely that kind of put us in a situation where we felt on a personal level, and I can speak on a personal level or on, on the level of every each and everyone on our team, right? There were a lot of things, there, there was a lot of anxiety around, will we be able to stay in this country? Will we have issues uh, of, uh, you know, <laughs> persecution? Will we, it was uh, slightly harder to, to operate on a daily basis, but at the same time as a company, we actually felt a huge level of support from people in New York. So basically with, for instance, I can give you a very specific example when the travel ban happened, I think that was in 2018. Um, when that happened, 2017, I'm kind of, uh, it feels like so long ago after it's, everything it's else happened. It's all ancient history. <laughs> exactly. But basically I remember when that happened, Within a couple of days, we had an uptick in orders, actually. People started, you know, they were looking for ways to support, for vo voicing out their concern with what was going on. And they were going towards companies like us, right, or like ours, to show their support and kind of uh, create, send the message that they believed something in something else, right? And that they believed in immigration or whatever. They had a different rhetoric that they wanted to, to put through. So I wouldn't necessarily say that we've been affected by anything and I wouldn't necessarily call it better now. Obviously it is a way better, um, I also don't want to take this into too much politics, right? But it's definitely <laughs> a different climate that feels much more conducive <laughs> and much more positive in a sense. We know that there will be this, the current administration will be accepting way more refugees into the country. They will have a much more positive stance, if you will. Uh, and that's, we're definitely happy about that. It does not necessarily mean anything to us in the way we operate. So it's always still the same. If anything, the only thing that scares me with the current climate is that people kind of start feeling more at ease and not really caring about what happens. And sometimes we might forego things that might not be as good, right? Happening is just uh, remaining careful about what, what's going on around us, if, if that makes sense, Ethan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and what's your story? How did you start the company? Yeah, so I came, I'm originally from Lebanon. Uh, I came to New York in 2013. Uh, initially, I was working, before coming here, I was working as an environmental consultant back in Beirut, mostly, you know, uh, on issues around the, the Middle East. And I kind of hit a ceiling. I wanted to go elsewhere. So one of the easiest ways for, for me to kind of go elsewhere was to apply for a graduate degree. So I really, uh, I started looking for graduate degrees. I ended up landing on a graduate degree here in New York City at Columbia University. My goal was really to go into multilateral work. Uh, so it felt like really New York was uh, the, uh, the best place I could be. 
Uh, and so I moved here in 2013, and as soon as I got here, I was very disappointed with hummus in grocery stores, <laughs> or hummus as as we call it back here, back in Lebanon. It, and it's that's disappointing. Yeah, can you can you tell a little bit about what was disappointing about it? Like what what was missing? Yeah, good question. So you know how it's you can find it everywhere in New York. It's all over, and that was the very first surprising thing to me because in Lebanon, honestly, you never buy hummus at grocery stores. Like that's something you get at a restaurant, or you make your own at home, or you get it from fancy gourmet places, right? You get the real deal. You never get it in kind of a box or in a can. That that's uh, you could find it, but basically you rarely do that, right? So that was the first surprising thing: finding it all over wherever you go. There was so much hummus and so much variety around hummus that was surprising but then you buy it and there's something in the taste that's not authentic in a sense like to me it felt like uh it never hits the spot it's it's either not sour enough it's either you know there, there's not that perfect balance of garlic to to uh, lemon to chickpeas to tahini it never hits the spot basically at least in the ones i, I was finding uh, around me this um does that answer your question Barry? yeah that, I, I think you're you're kind of speaking i guess to the mass production of hummus and how it hasn't absolutely. quite been nailed. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And I'm definitely not talking, obviously there are restaurants here that do have a really good hummus. So I'm not talking about that. I'm really talking about the one that's available on the mass market, right? In grocery right. stores. That you buy in the little tubs that have a really long shelf life. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, so this is where I got disappointed. <laughs> Called my grandmother, got her recipe, started making it at home. And Somewhat that became successful, right? People around me in grad school would be, oh, Manal, can you make your hummus? We have a party. Can you make some? Or people would be like, oh, wow, this is so good. Uh, I would share it. Sometimes I would make it for my brother who lives on uh, on Long Island. Uh, he would give it to some neighbors and they would again say, wow, this is so good. So good. And small confession here, I'm not even that good of a cook, right? I enjoy cooking. I'm not even that good. So I, you know, we knew there was something to that hummus that was beyond just the, the act of cooking it. it. It had something to do with the story behind it, had something to do with, you know, the way I made it. Uh, I know it sounds cliche, but, you know, whenever it's made with love, it felt like that would come across, right? And people were interested in that. So that gave us an idea early on. And we started thinking, we felt like there was a gap on the market here. So we started thinking, why not bring better hummus to New York? And when, maybe to give you some more context, that was 2014, uh, 2013 or 2014, it was the midst of the refugee crisis back home in Lebanon, where I come from. Uh, it hadn't yet reached the US, you know, it was still kind of in the early stages, but it was definitely something that was in the back of my uh, my mind. I had left Lebanon uh, kind of feeling a bit of guilt in the back of my mind around the fact that there was nothing I could do about it, right? I had just left and th there was so much happening that I could not do anything about. Um, and another fact or fun fact, if you will, my grandmother who actually gave me the hummus recipe was from Aleppo, from Syria. So when we started thinking of who could bring better hummus to New York, we thought of Syrian refugees being resettled in New York City as the perfect community to tap into and see what if we find someone who makes really good hummus and then we partner and find a way to really bring that hummus uh, uh, to market. And that's really how it started. That was really kind of the idea that sparked things. Clearly, when we started looking into it, Barry, you mentioned that uh, to make it shelf-stable, we would have had to add, uh, you know, preservatives. There's so much complication. Also, it's an oversaturated market. So we, we geared away from making hummus per se. But that gave us an idea of, you know, we thought, why not make this idea a bit more global? Why not have refugees from all over the world, bring all of those recipes that just like hummus are so much better when they're homemade, when they're made with love, when they're made by someone who really knows what each ingredient should taste like, someone who really connects with that specific recipe, with that food, and can bring a better version of it uh, to, to New York initially. And that's how Eat Off Beat was born. The very first iteration, we felt, you know, the easiest way to start uh, doing that was through catering. So we kind of landed on a catering model where we, for like I mentioned, for the past six years, we, we did a lot of corporate catering. We catered for small and large companies, including, you know, small and large startups, um, universities, uh, UN agencies, conferences, 
um, small and large team meetings. So we kind of did everything across the board, up to gala dinners for 900 people. We've kind of, we've done everything from small groups of 10 up to 900 or, or 1,000 people. Um, and Ethan, like you mentioned, we kept iterating, trying new things, trying to understand what the market wanted, what people wanted, and trying to adapt to that. And I think that's a never-ending story. Like, I'm sure you do a lot also on, on a personal level, right? In, 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 uh, in business, you kind of have to do that. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're still there. We're, we still iterate, we try things, we see what works, and whatever sticks, we, we, we continue with it. What, what were some of the the early challenges? I mean, catering of all kinds of food businesses, catering has got to be one of the hardest, or at least uh, at least it has some unique challenges that are uh, that are, that just don't exist uh, if you have a brick and mortar restaurant or if you're running a CPG company. You know, having to having to move. I've worked for various catering companies, having to move an entire kitchen essentially into a space that isn't set up to be a kitchen. Cook a beautiful dinner for nine hundred people and then pack it up and go home in in two hours. I mean, it's the logistics of catering, the the processes of of making those kinds of events work are incredibly difficult. And so to come in from the outside like you did and, and just kind of figure out how to do it, um, what what were the steps involved? How did, how did you do that the first few times, especially? Yeah, I, I love that you're asking that. And, you know, I'm only realizing how hard catering was now that we're doing something else. And I see, wow, this is so easy. You know, the, the whole team. <laughs> when you we're shipping been doing boxes. something else the whole time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I hope we're not discouraging anyone who's planning to go into catering, it's, which, I mean, it's not the case. There's also a lot of advantages to, to doing catering. But I absolutely agree. It's, it's really hard logistically. Some of the early challenges, I mean, at the same time, what's nice about catering, it's a cash flow, easy business, if, if you will, in a sense. Uh, and I say that because, you know, it's a business where you guarantee, especially in the very early days, where our idea was just a concept, right? In 20, when we were just starting out, there was nothing to prove that this is something that could work. So to get funding, to get loans, to get anything was, was close to impossible, right? Especially with me being a first-time founder, I had never done uh, started any businesses before that. So it was close to impossible to get any level of funding without at least proving something. So that's where catering is actually a very easy path because you start with a small thing, you get paid ahead of time, uh, at least you get, uh, you know, uh, some sort of an advance payment. So you, you you have enough money to cover all of your costs. You pay for a kitchen space. You pay your, uh, you know, you pay, you cover the salaries, the food costs, all of that uh, transportation. So that makes it much easier from a startup point of view. You don't necessarily need to put in a lot of um, expenses, let's say, or a lot of investment upfront to be able to start. So that's one of the more positive things. Uh, and then the other nice thing with catering is that, you get booked for one event and that's 200 people that now know about you, right? They've tasted your food. So also on, in terms of marketing, there's less that you need to invest because your food itself becomes your marketing or at least one of uh, your marketing tools. So those are two things that were positive, positive or uh, uh, less challenging, let's say. But maybe to answer your question on what was challenging, and I think you've, you've already answered that, but basically the logistics of it, moving an entire kitchen, going all over, especially that we really covered... Um, so like I mentioned, we did a lot of corporate catering and most of that happened at lunchtime. So the bulk of our, our, our peak uh, in terms of delivery happened around lunch. Uh, and this is where it became very challenging to ensure, you know, delivery at time, have enough, a big enough team so that we could deliver to all our customers at the same time uh, on, on a specific day. And the way we've, I'm not going to say nailed it because we were still in the process of nailing it, but the way we've, we've um, addressed that was by using technology to the, highest extent possible, right? And kind of optimizing our routes and kind of in, ter in, in terms of optimizing how we got the orders, how we processed them, how we showed them to the kitchen in a way that made it easy to process at the same time to have several orders happening at once without kind of um, um, burdening, if you will, the production team too much. So all of that was in standardizing, streamlining processes, whether that's online or offline, even, even production processes, which I'm sure you're familiar with, kind of standardizing the menu itself, the, the base ingredients. So it was a lot of work hand in hand that went, uh, went there to, to be able to handle the peaks 
and also to be able to handle the downtime, right? Because you might have a peak on Tuesdays around lunchtime, but then you have a full week where there are really very few orders, right? Because it's a week where uh, in August where all employees are off, so there's practically no no catering at all happening. So how do you handle that time? How do you use that time to prepare for something else? Um, interrupt me if I'm going uh, too deep into, <laughs> into something. I, you know, once I get started, it's... <laughs> No, I, I think you brought up me. such a great point about um, how to kind of get over those barriers to entry that a lot of people who are minorities or immigrants or, you know, people who, who don't necessarily have like access to loans or to capital early on, like how exactly. can they still get started in the food industry? And you often see the, the same story with catering and you often see that that is a way um, that you can kind of, I'm not going to say bypass those barriers century because they still exist, but it is right. a way to kind of get your foot in the door and to get your name out there um, and to kind of start building a presence um, and actually having people have a chance um, to eat your food, which right. is in many ways is a big part of of any aspect of the food business. So um, I just thought that was really interesting that, you know, that was the path that you took that we see so often um, with minority owned businesses specifically. Um, and how did it, like, how did it grow from there? That's, that's another fun question. <laughs> and I, I totally agree with you. Like, it's probably because it's slightly, it's, a slightly easier path to start with, and I think we were also lucky enough, if you will, to 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 start with that. Right, and not not easy in the amount of work it takes to do, but like not easy at as all. far <laughs> as like um, getting through like just like early capital and financing, because like you said, exactly. people they will pay at least part of it up front and that sort of thing. Exactly, exactly, absolutely. Uh, and then from there, you know, we we stayed there for five to six years. It's, so, it's not until now that we really started pivoting and doing something else. It was we started exactly a year ago. We started uh, gearing away from catering, but otherwise we ha we had been growing in catering, and it was an area that we started feeling comfortable with, to be honest. Despite everything we mentioned, despite it being hard, but I mean, let's be real. Every business has sides that are really hard. In that case, it's uh, logistics. I'm sure you know there are other challenges in any other business. So we were, we had built the processes to be able to deal with that in a sense, right? Um, and we had been growing. We were in a really good place actually in, in March 2020. That was exactly the, 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 the quarter, Q4 of 2020 was supposed to be the quarter where we went, you know, we were supposed to uh, make up on our investment over the past five years and in hard work, let's say. But that did not happen. Um, I'm trying to see how to answer your question and kind of how we went from there. I think part of what made our pivot successful in a way uh, after COVID is that we had built a lot of, so again, I know I'm mentioning this a lot, but all of the processes we had built, they were for catering, but much of it was really replicable. A lot of it was easy to uh, adapt to anything else that was obviously still in the food industry, but you know, but you know, we already had a structure in place for delivery, for instance. We just had to change that from an office uh, set up to a home setup, right? So that was in place. We had a delivery team and a, and a service team that was working in catering. We just had to adapt their roles a little bit, change it a little bit, and then have them start doing deliveries uh, to homes, right? Uh, building on whatever we had we had built earlier. I'm going to mention tiny examples, right? Those are maybe just to illustrate my point a bit further. But uh, we had, you know, checklists, for instance, for for catering. And those, uh, Ethan, like, like you mentioned, it's such, you're taking every, you're taking an entire kitchen with you when you're moving, when you're uh, running an event uh, uh, remote, not, not at your kitchen. So we had a very strict uh, checklist uh, process, if you will. And that translated automatically to our meal boxes when we started delivering meal boxes. And it made it 
a relatively seamless process where error rate was very, very low because we already had that in place, right? We had that checklist process, the entire thing, it was already there. We just had to change a bit the way it came, the way it was printed. Now, instead of it being three, four pages, it was a very small um, post-it note, if you will. Um, so again, I'm mentioning those small anecdotes just to uh, illustrate kind of the changes that happened there. But one more thing I will mention in, in this sense is, and I think this is really crucial and very important to who we are as a company, but knowing that the majority of our team members, so I mentioned we're, I would say 75% of our team members are, are refugees. The remaining are either immigrants. There's a couple Americans, obviously, on, on the team too. But basically, everyone on the team has built their lives three, four times over, right? So rebuilding their position, rebuilding a business itself was not necessarily a huge challenge, or at least, I mean, definitely it wasn't that easy, but it was... It's something that's already built in our DNA as a company and as individuals on, on the team. So having to revisit how you operate or having to revisit basically your entire structure as, as a company, um, we had an advantage there because we had people who were incredibly resilient and incredibly adaptable. So I think that was also key to how we evolved and kept adapting uh, to date, to this day. Am I answering your question? Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> um Thank you for kind of clarifying that. And I think we should take a break and we will be right back with more. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we're back. You're listening to Why Food, and our guest this week is Manal Kahi, co-founder and CEO of Eat Off Beat. Um, Manal, I know that you like to talk about your business as a social enterprise, as it is. Uh, that's a... A, a term I think that it's more complicated than most people realize. Uh, what what does it mean to you to run a social enterprise, and what are some of the common misperceptions that you come across about it? That's a great question, and I totally agree. It's sometimes it it can feel like a bit of a loaded word, right? Especially I'll I'll tell you in which contexts, uh, and that maybe I'll bring us back to the days where we did uh, primarily catering. So very often we would approach. Um, a company, right? Spend a lot of time until we figured out who the exact person was that we needed to reach out to so that we could sell them their food, basically. And after giving our entire pitch, right, being at our best, telling them who we were, you could tell that they automatically put us in a bucket of a nonprofit or some sort of a cute project. And immediately they would be like, whoa, this is fascinating. I love everything you're telling me. Let me put you in touch with our CSR department. And that drove me crazy because I basically, I don't want to talk to CSR, right? I'm selling you food. You are the person I need to talk to. It's, we're bringing you really good top quality food that competes with anyone else you're, you're getting, right? Uh, so sometimes it's hard in that sense where people automatically put, put you in that bucket. That also applies to investors, right? That's another, another one of our, uh, I would call them like the main challenges we face as, as a business. Same thing for investors, you start pitching or by them from the moment they hear about you, either from yourself, if you're introducing yourself directly or sometimes through an introduction from someone, 
again, the very first impression is, oh, this is a nonprofit. This is not necessarily a business model that's profitable or that can be, that compete with other businesses that I as an investor might be interested in and that I feel that would bring me returns. Um, so I do think that this sometimes puts us as social businesses or social enterprises at a bit of a disadvantage. Um, but obviously there are ways to go around that, but, you know, by kind of making sure you're always upfront and clear about what, you, you know, how, how good the business is in, in a sense, but it, it, it definitely puts you in a tough spot sometimes where, you know, that's the first impression that people get. Oh, it's a nonprofit. And if you want, we can talk a bit more about why we're not a nonprofit, basically. Um, but this is, I, I would say this is one of the major uh, challenges. Yeah, I mean, we've we've had very similar conversations. I mean, from feedback that I got early on, which I think was was good. Feed, I mean, correct feedback that our website looked too much like an NGO. And I think there is this this um, you know, often those of us who start social enterprises start them because we care about the issues behind them and want to talk about those issues. And and it's it's a slippery Absolutely. slope to uh, to you know to stop talking about the issues and start talking about the product that you yeah, that you want to sell. And it's also a thin line because your customers also want to hear about those topics, right? That's why they're interested in you in the first place. So it's, uh, I think maybe that's the third challenge for me. It's really navigating where do you draw the line between being very impact-oriented and showcasing your product first. Obviously, for us, it's always been product first because at the end, we're selling food. And the last thing, you know, that's one of my nightmares. The last thing we would want to be doing is selling our stories basically that's not the point right this is kind of it's it's more of a tool that we need to use to communicate better and to kind of re-establish that missing connection between consumers of food whoever we are that obviously includes me and who prepares our food everyone who's involved in that entire chain and which starts with with uh, the, the people you work with <laughs> ethan right okay. in, in a sense so really re-establishing that connection but where do we draw the line between uh, between those two things, product and and story behind the product, basically. Yeah, I mean, I see a lot of social enterprises or aspiring social entrepreneurs struggle to to figure that out, struggle to make that decision. Um, how how did you how did you decide that you were going to be product focused rather than story focused? And and what advice uh, would you give to somebody else who's trying to make a similar decision for their own business? Yeah, you, you know, I think in a sense we had an advantage early on in the fact that. For us, it's a very clear equation. The more we sell, the higher the impact. The more we sell, the, the higher uh, or the more people we can hire, the better salaries we can pay, the more profitable, the higher the salaries that we can pay and the higher the impact. So it's always been about selling more, right? Or selling more and selling better and uh, having higher margins, whatever that is. You know, so I would say in a sense, that's what made us, made it always clear that we had to sell our food first. So that that's kind of... Uh, uh, it was relatively easy, right, to, to figure out that that equation early on. The other thing I would mention here, f for us, I think that's also part of the reason why we never structured as as a nonprofit. I mentioned this earlier. So part of our mission, if you will, is to showcase a different story, right? It's a story where refugees are not necessarily, and this is really, it's reflecting a, a truth, right? An actual fact, a situation where Refugees are not necessarily always looking for charity, right? There are cases where obviously, especially when people are still moving into the country or there are a lot of cases where you do need philanthropic initiatives, if you will, to, to help refugees resettle. But in many, many, many cases, if not most cases, once refugees are resettled in a place, they become active contrib contributors to the local economy. They start businesses. They start. They they create jobs. Uh, they're paying taxes. They do all of that. And this is part we we as a business wanted to prove that and to showcase that. And it is the case today, right? All of our chefs are W two employees, right? They're, they're they're employees. They're paying their taxes. Some of them are partners in the business. Some of them actually went on to start their own businesses. They've already been hiring people. Um, they're active contributors to the local economy. They're adding to how rich the the scene and the food scene in New York is. So we wanted to showcase that and disprove, if you will, the 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 narrative where refugees are always relying on taxpayers' money to, to survive. It's it's not the case. And we wanted to really strengthen that point, if you will. Um, so this is part of the reason why we were insisting on being a for-profit since uh, since the early days. 
um, I'm kind of losing losing my train of thought here. What, what was the initial question? Well, uh, yeah, what what advice? I mean, I, like the way that I often think about it is that um, you know we we have one and a, we can have one and a half marketing messages. You can you can say one thing fully, and then you can say one thing halfway. Right. Um, and and making that decision, what's the one thing and what's the half thing? I mean, for us, like it was for you, it it, it had to be about product first, and so that even somebody who didn't care where the cinnamon came from or why it was so good knew that it was so good and and would come back and buy it again and i think i think a lot of early stage social entrepreneurs um see the power of the story to bring people in the first time but but my sense at least has been that the story is less effective over time that that it'll get somebody in the door for that first purchase but how do you how do you bring them back time Absolutely. and again and and the story is less effective after you know less effective at, at that kind of customer retention. Um, I don't know. Yeah, what what advice would you give to somebody who's trying to figure that out? Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, it's a motto we we often use actually, especially internally. We always say, "Come for the mission, stay for the food." If our food is not good, people are not coming back. And the key is really in bringing people back. And I think to your point, the biggest level of impact we can have is if someone at a random party, tries our food, loves it, says, wow, this is so good, without even knowing who, who actually made it, and then discovers that, wow, this was made by Chef Doha, who's from Iraq, and all of a sudden has this incredible new approach or new image about Iraq, which may have been something else in the past, right? Because of everything you've been seeing on the media. But now you realize that Iraq is such a rich country. There are all these flavors that I can taste. There's all this rich culture that's behind, you know, it starts with this food, but there's also all the music and there's everything around uh, what brought me this dish today, right? So this is really where the, uh, the, the impact can be highest. Well, I wanted to ask you something else about that, because this is something I get stuck on myself in, in thinking about that uh, equivalency, right? Like right. enjoy the food, appreciate the people or appreciate the culture. Um, and I think that's a I think that's a tricky I think that's a tricky framework because the opposite of that or, or the extension of that is if you don't like the food, mm -hmm. which, you know, fair enough, some people aren't going to like the food. Absolutely. Um, what is that? How, like, how do you how do you extend that out to say if you don't like the food, you should still like the people and still appreciate the culture that that created this recipe? Oh, absolutely. Um, that that's a tough question. I would say, like, uh, yeah, that, that that that's challenging to answer. I mean, obviously, no one's going to like everything all the time, but there must be at least one dish that you can find similarities with whatever you are used to as, uh, you know, uh, whatever your, your palate is used to. So I, I, although I, I agree with you that you might, there might be flavors that some people may not necessarily be excited about, there will definitely be something. There's something so universal about food that at the end of the day, we're all using relatively similar Ingredients, right? Relatively similar. It's just the spices that sometimes make things spice things up and, and make it a bit different, right? And I'm sure you, can blame you know, it on the spices. Right? You blame know so much spices. about that. But you know, I always had this um, this anecdote, something that struck me in the very, very early days. Actually, in our very early days at the kitchen, uh, we had an Iraqi chef and we had a Nepali chef. And one day we needed new recipes. We had a bit of extra time, and the head chef had said, "Let's try anything. Just do do anything, right?" And we were, I was minding my own business somewhere, and then we noticed both chefs started with potatoes without even looking at each other. Right? They both brought potatoes, peeled them, started boiling them. Around the same time, they both took them out, started mashing them. Uh, and then they started in parallel making some sort of a filling, right? Again, at the same time, they filled them, made some sort of a croquette and fried them at the same time without even looking at each other, right? They didn't even notice that that was happening. And about an hour later, we had two very completely different types of potato croquettes. One had a filling with beef from Iraq and with uh, seven spices, you know, the flavors that you often smell in a Middle Eastern market. And the other one had a very different, was a vegan potato croquette, so different filling with vegetables and a very different flavor, um, smell, right, or, or spices, uh, taste profile. But you, you tasted them and they almost... Same texture, right? Just something a bit different. The flavor was was probably different, but the texture was almost the same. And it just, it brings to mind how universal things are, right? So you put a bit more of this, a bit more less of that. And at the end, it's, we're, we're all the same. 
Uh, and I know that's not necessarily answering your question of how how do you deal with people who don't really like a specific type of of cuisine. I'm gonna. I think the main answer to that is you know a culture is also so many other things. So you may not necessarily appreciate this specific dish, but there must be something else that you might appreciate. Whether that's music, the language itself. Uh, the way a specific country feels or maybe the way the chef themselves, right? The chef herself or himself who who made that dish will make you feel when you join them at their dinner table, right? How uh, welcoming they are, how caring they will be while serving you the food. Maybe those are other elements that one can appreciate uh, regardless. Is that, how do you think about that, uh, Ethan? Is there something else you, you you think of when someone really doesn't like a specific? Uh... Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think, uh, I mean, in general, I think it is harder than than those of us who, who eat a lot of food from a lot of different places and, and have traveled and really appreciate that aspect of, of cultural diversity. I think it's harder than we realize for many people to taste something they've never tasted before, a spice or a flavor profile a combination of ingredients, um, those those are often a little surprising or maybe even right. off-putting to people at first. So, um, you know, this, this I, I also just, uh, I don't, this idea of food as universal, sure it is, absolutely, but also it isn't. And lots of other right. things are universal that we don't necessarily bond over in the same way. Um, right. So, so I, I mean, I, I, not that I have a particular answer to that question. It's, it's a, it's an impossible question to answer, but, but, but I think, I think the way that you approach it, right. You know, the food is good, but also here are the people who made it. Here's why their stories are important. Here's the reason that you, you know, that you eat off beat are serving the dishes that you serve. Um, you know, you're telling a story about, if not universalism, at least, uh, shared, shared values, shared appreciation for, for a meal, regardless of what goes into that meal, um, Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think it's about opening it up beyond the specific dish and, and looking at the culture, just as you just said. Absolutely, absolutely. And there's, you know, there's something we've been toying with, some sort of a an offbeat meter. You know, there are dishes that are easy when you're not really used, when you're you don't think of yourself. I mean, first of all, we're probably as a company we're targeting more adventurous eaters rather than you know anyone who's someone who usually doesn't like, you know, who's very specific in, in what they like to eat, that's probably not our ideal customer, right? But then that, that's the first thing. Right. The other thing I was going to mention, we also have, there are dishes that feel very similar to something like, let's say you're someone who grew up in the US, you're very used to a very specific type of food. There must be something on our menu that's relatively similar to those. So those are relatively introductory dishes that we can that you can start with. And then you can start exploring more adventurous dishes or more offbeat dishes that may be a bit much more different from what you're used to. Uh, Valerie, were you going to oh, ask Oh yeah. Something? And I mean, and like you said, like when you first came here, how much hummus did you see? I mean, and New York City, it, it just seems like the perfect place for this this type of entity to kind of take right. root and thrive, given right. the cultural cultural diversity within this city and also just its proximity and like ease of being able to travel to other places. So you would assume that there is like a, a a large group of people who are open to the the concept of food as an experience and not just like, I want to order that because that's my favorite food or, or that's, you know, something nostalgic that I want to eat tonight. There are people who are like, oh, I'm interested in learning um, how this other group of people eat and how they, um, how they experience flavors and textures. Absolutely, absolutely. And I love how you called it, you know, it's it's more of the experience around it, not just the specific dish. And we've seen that happen, right? When you taste something and only the because you know so much, you've read so much about it before you taste it, it makes it taste so much better, right? Even like if you tasted that exact same dish in a context where you just had it and you don't really think about how it came to you, you may not appreciate it as much as when you've actually read the story of the person who prepared it. Maybe the story about that specific ingredient that went into it, where it came from, who picked it, uh, how it came to be right in front of you. And I think that actually makes the experience way more enjoyable. And that's something that our customers definitely appreciate. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm sure people have perhaps written dissertations on like that connection to food and and the rest of our ideas around the food. Uh, absolutely. 
Should we do some rapid fire, Ethan? Let's do it. All right, um, I'll start. Um, spring is spring is coming in a couple of weeks. Finally. Uh, <laughs> what what spring produce are you most looking forward to? You know, that's one thing that doesn't exist here, actually. I, I don't know if I can look forward to it because I'm not sure if I'm going to go home this year. But usually every time when I plan my visits back home, I plan them around April or May because there's a fruit called, in Arabic, it's called jarareng. It's sour plums. This is my favorite thing in the world. You can only find it in May and April, you know, around springtime. It's a sour plum, usually in the very early stage of the season. Am I taking too long to answer? Do you need me to be quick? No, no, no. What do you, how would, how would you eat it? Would you eat it's it? A would green, you like prepare it in a dish or? No, no, no. You eat it as a fruit. Like you eat it. Usually we have a couple, um, my parents right next to their house, they have a couple uh, trees. So you just pick it off the tree. Uh, when it's in the early days where it's still very, very sour, you put some salt on it and you just crunch into it. It's very crunchy. Um, and it's really one of the best, like one of my it's, my, it's my favorite fruit, basically. And then towards the end of the season, it turns into a regular plum. So it's not as crunchy anymore. It's not as sour. And this is where you drop the, the salt. You start eating it uh, alone. But usually we never cook them, actually. You only eat them fresh off of the tree. Or obviously, if you're buying them at the market, you know, you, you just eat them as a fruit. Yeah, I, I think that's the sign of like a good upbringing when you want to schedule your trips home around what's in season, because I can definitely relate to that. <laughs> yeah, that's certain. That's the one thing I really miss from back home. <laughs> what are uh, one or two of your favorite dishes that, that you've made through Eat Off Beat or that the chefs have prepared? The, what are the standouts for you? You know, one of my favorites was a dish I, I told you about a little earlier, potato kebbe. That's a potato croquette that's made in Iraq. We, we, we've never had that in, in Lebanon, so I had never had that as a, as a kid. Uh, it's fried potato and it's filled with minced beef and a lot of spices. Uh, and obviously it's deep fried, so that makes it 10 times better. That's, that was one of my favorites. Uh, another one of my favorites, I would say, that I recently discovered is chicken fesenjan which is an Iranian dish made with um, uh, pomegranate molasses, another one of my favorite ingredients that I use a lot in Lebanese cuisine, but that I had never tasted um, in the way it's, it's made in, in Fessenjan. So that was another one of the highlights uh, that I've discovered recently. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not to, not to uh, uh, pull the conversation back to what we were talking about earlier, but for me, Fessenjan was one of those dishes. The first time I tasted it, I found, I found very confusing. It's sweet and sour, but it's a savory dish. And I had never, I think I must've had it in college or something for the first time. I had never had a savory dish that had that, that level of, of sweetness. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, just, uh, it, it took some getting used to, and you know, now I love it, but um, Absolutely, it, it's it's a little bit surprising, or was to me the first time I tasted it. I agree with you, and we always, we often, whenever we push that dish, like we know it's it takes someone a bit more on the adventurous side to like it. Not only because of the taste, from what you mentioned, Ethan, but even the color, right? It's dark brown, and I think people here are not always used to seeing that color on food, right? It's it's a color that is also sometimes off-putting to some of our customers. So usually either we say, hey, up front, we, we, we tell them that this is what to expect. And that sometimes makes it easier when people know what to expect uh, ahead of time. It makes it a bit easier to uh, to enjoy it, at least. Yeah. But I, I agree yeah. with you. We did have a bunch of, especially early on, a bunch of people who were like, oh, what is this? But then they start liking it <laughs> eventually. Sweet, sweet chicken. I mean, it's delicious. If anybody hasn't tasted it, uh, taste it. <laughs> Valerie, you want to do one more question? Sure. Yeah. Um, let's see. Let me try to make it a good one to end on. Um, I guess, like, is there a kitchen tool that you use when you're, like, cooking the kinds of foods you grew up with? Like, that one tool you can't live without? It's, it's a tool I could live without, but that I really appreciate. And I also brought one with me from home. Like when, whenever I lose it, I would bring it back from home. I wouldn't know how to call it in English. It's a tool. It's kind of, it's a long thing that you use to empty uh, whenever we need to make stuffed um, zucchinis. So mm -hmm. that's one of my favorite dishes. There's a tool that we use back in Lebanon to empty it from the inside, to make it hollow, right? So that you can stuff it. Um, and I have no idea what that's called. Um, but so it yeah, like it, you said it empties zucchini. 
Exactly. It does. Ah, so you do you like push it through the zucchini and it pushes the insides out? Exactly. You don't push it because you need to keep the other end of the zucchini. You have to keep it so it stays whole. Oh, right? But you just okay. empty everything from the inside. You make it. You make a big hole inside of it so that there's only the skin of the zucchini, and then you stuff it with rice and uh, ground beef and spices and and tomatoes and all of that. Um, and then you cook. You cook, I mean th- that gets cooked and it gives you stuffed zucchini. <laughs> yeah, I I love those tools that just make life a little bit easier. <laughs> it, it does, and you can do it with a regular spoon, right? Because the zucchinis are so small. Um, that you, you can be using just a spoon or something like that. It bre- they, they break. They start breaking. <laughs> and, and last but not least, um, you are coming out with a cookbook, which was our sort of our excuse for having you on the show now. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the book and, and uh, where people can, can pick up a copy? Absolutely. So we've been working on this cookbook for about three, more than three years, close to four years now. It's called The Kitchen Without Borders. We're incredibly excited that it's finally out. We've had it, we've been working on it with Workman Publishing, our, our publisher, who have been incredibly supportive in the entire process. So it's a cookbook that has 70 recipes from all of our chefs, or at least from 12 different um, um, chefs on, on our team. Um, and it's a collection of both recipes and stories about every single person who's featured uh, in the book. Uh, incredibly exciting. There's all of the recipes I mentioned that are favorites of mine are in the book. So you get the recipes. You can also try the real version on our menu, actually. We have a menu that we launched just a couple of days ago that has, um, I think, about 12 different recipes from the book. So you can get them, try our chef's version, and then maybe make your make your own version and see which one's better. <laughs> um, so that that's really exciting. And Ethan, I think we should also mention what the other exciting thing that's coming up around the cookbook. Am I allowed to yeah. mention that? <laughs> yeah, you can you can get a, a copy of the cookbook with a set of carefully curated burlap and barrel single origin spices, uh, which you can purchase through our website burlapandbarrel.com or uh, on your website, right? Absolutely, incredibly excited about that. So that you get <laughs> top quality spices, and then you have the recipes uh, to use them. <laughs> and where can people uh, learn more about you and your company? Follow you on social media. Um, sign up for your your provisions box. Yeah, so we're on uh, at Eat Off Beat on both Facebook and Instagram. We're most active on Instagram, but we're active on on both. Uh, also on LinkedIn, Twitter, all of that. And it's always at Eat Off Beat. Otherwise, you can find us on our website, eatoffbeat.com, where you can purchase either our fresh meals delivered all over New York City or our provisions at gift boxes that ship nationwide. Awesome. Thank you to Amanda, our amazing sound engineer. Thank you to the Red Crickets for our theme song, Blind. Um, You can reach us by email, whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org. You can reach me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. And you can find me on social at foodie in New York. And most of all, Manal, thank you so much for joining us. This was such a great conversation and, and congratulations on the book. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks. See you all next week. See you next time. Bye. Why Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.